0: Hello and welcome to The Weekly Brief, brought to you by The Daily Journal. I'm Howard Miller, contributing editor and podcast host for The Daily Journal, and today our guest is Dario Fromer, the former majority leader from the California Assembly. Dario Fromer brings a unique perspective on issues facing the California legislature, which is what we will be talking about today. He was not only a majority leader, he has served at the highest levels of government in the executive branch as appointment secretary to Governor Gray Davis. He also has very significant experience in the courtroom as a longtime litigator. He is now a partner at the Aiken Gump law firm, Aiken Gump, Strauss, Hauer, and Feld, where he also does... A great amount of administrative work, so his perspective on all this is unique, and I think invaluable because of the range of service, the range of experience that he has over every element of the California legal and political system. Dario, thank you so much for joining us.
1: It's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting.
0: Me. Uh, let you know, COVID is going to be a big issue in the uh, in the legislature, obviously, but. Also, I'd like to start with a discussion of, of finance. Uh, there is now a surplus projected for the California budget in terms of dealing with these issues. Isn't there, how, how did that come about?
1: Yeah, it's a counterintuitive, but we have a 26 billion with a B dollar surplus in California. And, and the reason is that California is uh, heavily reliant on personal income tax to fund state government And even though we've been in a situation where a lot of people are not working, uh, the wealthiest among us are continuing to work. And not only that, many of us uh, have enjoyed uh, good business ventures, Uh, we've been able to get stocks sold, we've been able to do IPOs, and all of those activities contribute greatly to the coffers of the state. So it puts us in a good position this year uh, to weather Uh, some of the serious problems that are facing us that are going to require uh, some expenditure from the public till.
0: Yeah, this is uh, really important, I think, for everyone dealing with the state to understand. We we really have a boom and bust uh, financial issue because uh, California, I guess, in many ways, would be like an investor who invests 80% of investable assets in NASDAQ and high-tech industries but doesn't have a long time horizon, has to sell every year on December 31st. And that is basically the position California's in. If the if the high-tech stocks go up, so options are exercised, there can be a surplus. But if the economy goes down and those stocks do not go up, uh, there's a bust. And we'll talk about what that means for the immediacy of the issues. But that's also a long-term structural issue in, in terms of California state government, isn't it?
1: Uh, it is indeed, Howard. You know, as, as a legislator, I was critical of this. Um, about 65% of our income comes from personal income tax. And so when the economy catches a cold, uh, we get the flu. And a lot of us have talked over the years about saying that the state needs to diversify its taxation system. Don't put all your eggs in one basket because this over reliance on personal income tax revenue to fund the government. Is really, uh, very, very susceptible to these boom bust cycles, particularly when we're looking at tech. You have a couple of good big IPOs this year. It fueled, fueled that $27 billion surplus. But, um, if the economy goes flat and people aren't doing IPOs and not selling stock because the market's down, it goes in the opposite direction. So uh, tax reform really is an issue that, um, that all Californians should be concerned about, particularly uh, the legislature and the governor, because we're going to continue to have boom bust cycles and uh, taxes until we fix it.
0: So that sets the stage for a discussion. We know we have that surplus this year. There's discussion about how much to spend this year. But let's talk about the issues that are going to come up in the context of the pressures that COVID ha- has imposed. I, I suppose a major issue the legislature we'll have to turn to immediately. And what I'd like to do in these issues we'd like to do is really talk about how they're going to arise and the issues. Nobody knows the solutions, but it's important to understand the issues. So we are facing this huge crisis in evictions because all the evictions moratoria are ending on December 31. And as of January 1, there are all sorts of estimates, but there could be millions of tenants. Uh, Unable to pay their rent during the pandemic who face the potential of evictions on which there is now no moratorium. Is that one of the first things the legislature is going to have to grapple with?
1: Absolutely. Uh, As you referenced, there's a a cliff coming and I think everybody's aware of it. Uh, It's going to be magnified if we don't have any action at the federal level before the end of the year to extend um, unemployment and some other benefits that have been uh, done through the CARES Act. Um, but basically you have people who are unemployed, lost their jobs, they can't pay their rent, and now uh, the landlords have been told to uh, stand back and, and, and not evict people, but that moratorium is coming to an end. So we're gonna have to do something uh, in California as well as on the federal level uh, to protect a lot of vulnerable people uh, from losing their homes and being on the street when we already have a huge, uh, heavily impacted homeless problem.
0: But let's talk about the issues there. I mean, if if, uh, if there's simply a continued moratorium on evictions, uh, landlords don't collect rent. And the, not every landlord is a major corporation. There are a great many small mom-and-pop landlords, people who've saved a lifetime to be able to own some rental property. So to prevent evictions, do you risk imposing huge financial costs uh, on the landlord's?
1: this is a huge concern. I mean, you may, as a landlord, may be able to absorb um, a few missing rent payments, but if you're small uh, and that property is your major investment, um, it's really going to hurt. So what really needs to happen is a a comprehensive package that addresses the financial woes of both the landlord and the tenant um, and allows both parties to move forward uh, with the hope that with vaccinations coming... Um, the pandemic will end, and we're probably facing a, a few more months of, of being uh, you know, re- severely restricted in terms of our movements and what we can do and work, and then you hope the economy improves. But one of the things that can be done is the, the governor can go to major lenders and the major uh, mortgage servicing companies, because you know, a lot of these loans are sold uh, by the lenders, and have a conversation about forbearance, about giving people um, a break on their mortgage payments for a few months, not charging late fees, um, and finding other measures that we can do to get uh, some relief so that everybody is taken care of, the renters can stay in place until they can pay rent again, and then the landlords are not going to be losing their property uh, because of a
0: foreclosure action. But if there's simply forbearance, uh, that raises issues about whether the delayed rental payment Uh, will ultimately be able to be made, isn't there going to be a very considerable demand for financial guarantees or financial expenditures here to make people whole so that no one group bears the risk and cost of what has happened?
1: Uh, Absolutely, but forbearance isn't the only solution here. There's continued support, economic support. (laughs) Uh, for the unemployed so that they at least have some money to pay rent, maybe it's a partial payment, it's extending the unemployment insurance, uh, it's possibly looking for other funds and grants that you can get out to people to keep them uh, whole and allow them to make, uh, you know, some payment uh, uh, while they and they at the same time trying to help the landlords negotiate with their lenders. That's got to be a comprehensive package, but I think there are things we can do, and as I said before, hopefully now with the vaccine coming Um, And we're supposed to see a million doses by the end of the month in California alone. This is a short-term problem that we can fix um, and move move forward until we can get back to a more normal state and get the economy back working again uh, in a better fashion.
0: But this issue, the eviction, may have a, a, a time horizon on it given the vaccine, but one of the issues connected with the evictions, of course, is is homelessness, uh, which has been a major issue even before the pandemic and exacerbated uh, by the pandemic. Will there be measures uh, that the legislature considers uh, to deal with the homelessness crisis?
1: I, I think so. I, I think, you know, the, the homeless issue was Governor Newsom's top priority when he gave his state of the state address last year in january it was his number one thing uh he never got to work um other than doing a few uh, covid related uh, announcements so now i think it's the time to get back at that problem um and really start thinking about how we can more aggressively build temporary housing uh, you know get people off the streets provide the help that they need whether it's mental health whether it's job training um it's whether it's substance abuse uh, recovery uh, these are all issues that are are woven into that uh, thorny or thicket of homelessness um, i think you will see more it was interesting last year the legislature did pass the bill to create a homeless bar uh to oversee all the sort of marshal all the forces the resources the agencies of the state the governor said we don't need it he vetoed the bill i uh, wonder this year if that bill gets reintroduced whether he'd sign it
0: and also this comes in the context of Other housing issues, I mean, the the, uh, chair of the Senate Housing Committee uh, recently was announced uh, will be Senator Scott Weiner of uh, of San Francisco. Senator Weiner has introduced bills in the past uh, dealing with homelessness that really proposed on a statewide basis to affect local control over single family uh, zoning. Uh, and those bills did not come out of the legislature in the past. But will those same issues about permitting additional housing to be built in single-family zoning or areas near public transportation, that's bound to come back again in this in this current environment, isn't
1: it? Without a doubt, without a doubt. Although we're, we're seeing some some interesting changes in the housing market. You've probably read that rents in San Francisco and some parts of Los Angeles are falling Uh, significantly Uh, some people who have been renters and are working remotely have decided that they're gonna they can work from anywhere so they're moving out to um, other areas we're seeing huge increases and spikes in housing prices in Sacramento County and the northern San Joaquin Valley Uh, San Joaquin County stock in those areas the Bay Area people are moving out there they can afford to buy a house they can work remotely so that's lifting some pressure off of rents in communities but long-term, you're gonna to have to do something about the supply of housing. And that is a very thorny issue for the legislature when you start getting into the state, uh, mandating what zoning will look like in certain communities that works in some communities, that works in San Francisco where uh, Senator Wiener's from, it doesn't work so well in other communities which are traditionally um, you know, populated by single-family residences. It's just a different character. Um, and so it, it's a tricky tightrope to, to, to uh, walk, and it doesn't break down uh, evenly as a partisan issue. It, uh, it, every every legislator comes from a different area and they have a different opinion on whether something like what Senator Wiener is proposing is gonna work in their community. Um, the big challenge is getting all these different viewpoints together and uh, trying to hammer something out, and looking for common ground where everybody can agree uh, so that you can really spur uh, housing, uh, both affordable housing and and continue to hope that the regular housing market uh, goes. It was pretty strong before the pandemic. Um, but that is no easy task to, to negotiate between all those different interest groups in Sacramento, um, uh, and no one has been able to do it so far.
0: Well, it's interesting. You know what you said was really interesting about about the interest groups that are involved here. This the, the, the issue of local control against state mandates. Really, is not a Republican Democratic issue, is it? It's really a local versus statewide issue, and in, in which geography really is uh, a key factor in in who who supports and who doesn't. I'm hundred
1: percent correct. I mean, I think that the, the legislators who represent. Uh, suburban communities are going to have a different view on that than legislators who represent urban communities regardless of party. Um, and it, it really is about letting the local governments then determine the flavor of those communities uh, as they have been able to do since California became state. So that's it, a hard hurdle to get over, and hard, uh, it's difficult to find uh, a common ground there. At the same time, we need communities to build housing, that is affordable. And we need communities to look at innovative ways to get that housing done um, and, and make it happen. And that is a burden that has to be shared by all communities. Um, and so the communities who are facing the most of the issue with homelessness and high rent um, and, and displaced people are saying to suburban communities, hey, we're, we're doing, it. we're trying to do our part here and we're heavily impacted. Why don't, why don't you do something? Why don't you make uh, some affordable housing uh, available there's a huge tension there uh, that goes across
0: the state but and you mentioned uh, housing prices going up and and demand in sacramento and other parts of the san joaquin valley which really raises a whole additional discussion about uh you know for many years we thought of the great divide in the state of california was north south but now it's pretty clearly east west it's the coastal counties against the inlet not against but differentiated from the inland counties along the coastal counties. Uh, you know, we have census tracts that have some of the highest incomes and wealth in the world and in the San Joaquin Valley, some census tracts that really approach and are the equal to those in Appalachia. So this is also a long term structural problem in California, isn't it? How does how does the inland part of the state, which is so different economically, get really brought in to be part of one state?
1: It's a huge challenge. and As someone who spent a lot of time in, in uh, Central Valley and Central California, I, I can tell you it's just a different world from uh, Los Angeles and San Francisco and different opportunities and different economics. Um, some of it is changing just because of demographics and the fact that people are so priced out of the coastal communities that they're buying it. Uh, in communities in the Central Valley, in communities like Tracy, Lathrop, Stockton, um, are growing um, dramatically because that's, they're affordable and people are coming there. And those people who are coming there from the Bay Area are not necessarily working in those communities. They're telecommuting or commuting to the Bay Area, um, but they're bringing a different sensibility, uh, more of a Bay Area sensibility in those communities, and that is, uh, that is changing things. Um, and it's also putting more dollars into local economies. Uh, but the structural issues of, of poverty and uh, the the economics of agriculture, which are you know which are difficult, um, the fact that there's not uh, many high paying jobs in these communities, uh, continue to be uh, you know major obstacles. And what we've seen in this pandemic is people who made the last few years a little. Progress at the lower end of the wage scale and saw their wages go up and uh, to improve their position a little bit. So that's largely been wiped out by the pandemic. People are not working um, or they're working less. And so that's a, it's an added an added burden that we're going to have to, uh, to address.
0: And all this, of course, is affected by another issue that consistently, constantly comes before the legislature that the governor is very interested in, which is climate change because climate change and land use have been connected legislatively so that what, as we witness people working distant, from distance and not having to go into offices and being able to work for a San Francisco company in Sacramento or the San Joaquin Valley, this also will have an impact on climate change policies that is the highest priority for many people uh, in politics and, and, and in the legislature.
1: Yeah, it, it, it will. It, it sort of remains to be seen what that change is going to be. On the one hand, um, if people are comfortable working and telecommuting and their employers are okay with that, uh, we may see a reduction in traffic um, from these areas. Uh, that which remains to be seen. Um, what, we're all, what we're seeing on the other side of that ledger, however, is with people staying at home, uh, we're, we're seeing more and more traffic related to the delivery of goods, And um, I I don't want to pick on Amazon because I use them, but that's a great example. We're all home. We've got Amazon dropping off our supplies and clothing and and groceries. We're ordering our food on Doorshatch and Grubhub, uh, and that's creating additional traffic congestion and traditional greenhouse gas emissions. So for a while in Los Angeles, we were thinking, wow, we've done pretty well. The pandemic's here and air quality is great. But over the summer, that turned out not to be true uh, because of an increase in freight, in trucks. Um, So it it may actually change the dynamic of of what the problems are, and the problems that we have to tackle uh, in climate change. Um, And that remains to be seen, because we don't know if that behavior is going to continue after the pandemic, or whether we'll go back to a a world where people are happy to commute uh, to an office, you know, 40, 50 miles away.
0: And so much of this Climate change and other areas are concerned with transportation policy. You've been chair of the California Transportation Commission. I want to get to that discussion. But before we do, let's take a break. We've been talking with Ariel Fromer about issues evolving in the lead California legislature. Those of you listening to this podcast can get one hour of MCLE credit through the Daily Journal. And we'll now take a short break so you can hear about how you can get that MCLE credit.
2: The Daily Journal is proud to provide the weekly brief and other content as MCLE credit. Head to dailyjournal.com MCLE to see all the available content and more information on how to earn one hour of MCLE credit all from the comfort of your home or office. Read an article, listen to a podcast, get credit. With a constant flow of information about the COVID-19 pandemic, it's become hard to keep up. That's why we've put all our coronavirus-related content into one place. Now you can find COVID appellate cases, news articles, guest columns, and episodes of The Weekly Brief on our new page. Stay up to date by visiting dailyjournal.com COVID.
0: We're now back from the, from the break, and I mentioned before the break, Dario, you were chair of the California Transportation Commission, which oversaw billions of dollars in transportation funding. There is now, not only as part of climate change, but all the other issues we're talking about, uh, housing and, and, and other issues, uh, severe deficits more than usual in public transportation, which has been so much a part of the strategy in involving urban urban issues recently. We're talking about people not riding public transportation, the buses, the trains, and the deficits are well beyond normal. Is this also going to be a financial challenge for the California legislature? Will the state government have to step up to the plate and deal uh, with, uh, with what is the, the severe strain on, on public transportation now?
1: Yeah, it's an excellent question. So this is another collateral uh, damage of COVID is that agencies, uh, commuter rail agencies, for example, who are uh, dependent to some degree on farebox revenues, uh, although they are heavily subsidized, they've seen their revenues go down. Uh, I was talking to Metrolink yesterday uh, in L.A. County, down 80%. uh, Incredible drops. Uh, Similarly, the agencies who have passed local sales tax Uh, initiatives to fund transportation, they have seen the sales tax revenue decline. Uh, Tolling agencies who are charging you to go on express lanes or toll roads, they have seen a huge decline in revenue. Uh, All of this at a time where California really wants to promote more use of commuter rail, more use of transit, and more use of toll lanes as a congestion management and a greenhouse gas mitigation factor. So the numbers are going to be staggering, and it just, it's just another issue that the legislature is going to have to figure out. I would imagine that there's going to have to be some uh, subvention, some sort of infrastructure package, perhaps a bond measure, and to at least temporarily help some of these agencies get out of the hole and uh, to help them move forward. Um, the other thing that's happening, because the revenue is gone, uh, is that they're not able to complete projects that are already promised, so they have big holes in their budget, for projects that are already slated to go. So there's going to have to be some sort of aid, I think, to these agencies to help them get through uh, the next couple of years. And there may also be a federal transportation bill, which will help out with that. There's more and more talk about bailing out the transit agencies and the local agencies. So I think it'll be a state and federal, um, effort, um, that will have to happen. How much How much money will come from that, I, I
0: don't know. Of course, this cuts across a lot of other issues. There's been a, a growth in, in the uh, sales and purchase of used cars, uh, which are not environmentally friendly at all uh, because of people not wanting to take the risks of public transportation. And that, can, that has contributed to a decline uh, in environmental quality. Uh, And so all these issues connect. And an issue that plays a role here, while we're talking about climate change, are other environmental issues that have now become very prominent, especially the issue of environmental justice, uh, which has become, in the last several years, a prominent part of the environmental discussions in ways that it has never been before, as more and more people come to understand and realize the impact on minority communities and communities of color in terms of the environmental impact is is environmental the issues of environmental justice uh, going to be more prominent and will the legislature have to deal with those as well
1: uh, they, they are I mean they have been prominent I think they're going to continue to be uh, uh, prominent uh, but environmental justice is also as an interest group is also rubbing up against and conflicting with other uh, interest groups. Um, one of the big issues in California is California is one of the few states that has a re- very robust, its own very robust climate program, and that program has primarily uh, been uh, orchestrated by the use of carbon credits, uh, where polluters can uh, buy credits uh, to comply with their obligations. Uh, what that means is that the polluters are not all, always directly reducing emissions at their facilities or in their fleets and that has led to charges by the environmental justice community that the state really isn't doing enough uh to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and air pollution um at the source uh, and a lot of those sources are in communities that are disadvantaged uh, so that has been a consistent uh a rallying point but when they when they rally against the carbon credit system you're rubbing up against the oil companies some of the major utilities and organized labor because organized labor uh, is very well represented in the workforces of our oil companies and our, our utilities and other sort of traditional industries. Uh, they like cap and trade. They wanna be able to keep going and have carbon credits. as a better economic tool for them to comply. Um, so those, those forces are gonna to continue to clash in Sacramento uh, and the legislators are gonna to have to make some decisions uh particularly i think now about air pollution uh in the near term um that are going to be uncomfortable because they're going to have to they're going to have to choose some sides
0: yeah, no, that's a very insightful description, and and what people come to realize is that many people that have ordinarily been allies, I mean, you think of many people, for example, uh, having climate change as a, uh, a as a priority, at the same time being very involved in civil rights and and other and, and other equivalent issues, and yet we find that the climate change people. Who, who support cap-and-trade as a way of, of, of controlling uh, fossil fuel emissions run into clashes with a great deal, many people, part of the civil rights community who focus on the effects in local communities because with cap-and-trade, the local polluter can essentially, you know, buy their way out of continuing pollution. Uh, we see that conflict also in the drive Uh, for more solar energy, where there are proposals to uh, develop uh, major solar energy proposals, but are on Indian uh, tribal lands and their conflicts. And so what we see are people in this environment, not only pushed by COVID, but by climate change and environmental justice issues, who we've always thought of as being part of the same coalition, including labor, uh, now splintering over other interests that become more immediate to them, not part of the overall coalition. And that's really changing politics in California, isn't it? It,
1: it is. And I, I think the, uh, the, the labor folks want to protect their jobs, but even labor is split. You've got the uh, electricians, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, which is very interested in uh, solar. Uh, they want to be installing it. They see that as the future. You've got the more, the the pipe trades who are more interested in gas uh, transmission because they do the work on those plants. Uh, The Sierra Club wants to get rid of gas transmission systems in California and make everyone have electric stoves and and heaters. Um, And so all of these groups are are pitted against each other uh, as the state tries to move forward and uh, continue to meet its climate goals. Uh, It's going to be a continued fight and it's going to be interesting to see how that. Plays
0: out. Yeah, and of course, what's so interesting, is, as you're describing it, and we're talking about it, is, you know, people who've been part of larger coalitions have always considered themselves to be on the side of the angels against uh, whoever the opponents are. But now we find that, that those larger coalitions are, are, are splintering uh, and that they're real interests on both sides. These are not—I th- I don't think anyone would describe these— as easy issues to resolve politically or even on the merits. I mean, how do you measure uh, the effect of, of cap and trade on climate change? How do you measure the importance of that against the the very clear interest of, of preventing harm uh, in, in the minority uh, in, uh, communities represented by the civil rights groups? There are genuine interests on both sides and that's what uh, makes uh, the negotiations uh, and, and the discussion uh, so difficult and we 've talked about uh, uh, transportation finance problems, but there are also a great many i mean the cities and counties are suffering financially here. It's not just uh, in terms of transportation costs but in terms of overall budgets. Uh, And so is is the legislature going to be met with demands from local governments to help deal with their budgetary problems and have to face those financial uh, requirements as well?
1: I think there's a good possibility. I haven't seen anybody say they're going to introduce uh, legislation yet. But I think those conversations are coming if the city is really facing some dire uh, financial situations. And I don't think they're going to get any help uh, soon from Congress, yeah. uh, given the politics. And we'll see if the Senate changes hands or if it gets close. Um, that may be possible. But in the current in the current configuration, absolutely not. So I think that's going to be one issue. The other issue that's going to be uh, big is schools. Um, There's a a lot of angry parents uh, want to see their kids go back to school. I'm the father of a 15-year-old who's been distance learning. (laughs) Uh, It's not a good situation for these kids, both academically, uh, socially, or for their mental health. Uh, And so you've already seen legislators introduce bills to force the school districts to come up with plans to start returning to uh, probably a hybrid uh, of instruction uh, with some cohorts at school, some cohorts at home, uh, but they want that done by early spring. Uh, the teachers union, uh, saying they'll consider it, but of course they've got demands. They want to make sure there's good ventilation in classrooms. Uh, they're going to want protection for the, for their members. Uh, there will be questions about whether all teachers should be vaccinated, uh, first along with, with the, uh, with the healthcare workers. So there's a lot of thorny issues to figure out and all of those cost money. Um, So that's another local issue that's going to be on the plate of the legislature that's going
0: to be hot. Yeah. And as you've mentioned, this is really connected with national politics as well. And that may be one of the reasons why people are just starting to look at at asking the state for bailouts to local government. There are huge constant negotiations in Washington over the extent to which any new stimulus package or any new COVID relief package will include money for local governments. And if that doesn't come out of out of Washington, uh, that's going to increase the pressure on the legislature, especially uh, given the surplus. The school issue is really an issue that has struck home with people, with parents uh, and, and 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 with teachers. Uh, and is is it going to require a legislative solution? I mean, uh, so much of this is connected with existing collective bargaining rights. Of teachers, yeah. uh, and that has to be taken account uh, legally as well as politically in terms of how this is dealt with.
1: yeah, it's a delicate balance, and you're absolutely right each of these uh, each of these bargaining units in these different school districts are bargaining with their counterparts on the school boards and the school administrators to uh, in terms of what the reopen would look like in the district. so we have two hundred and two thousand in some school districts in the state that's a lot. So I think what you're seeing now in the legislature with the introduction of this bill by uh, mm-hmm. Assemblyman Pat O'Donnell, uh, Budget Chair Phil Ting, is the legislature saying, you know what, we're we're going to push. We are going to push everyone to the table to get a deal because what's happening now is not acceptable. Uh, and so you're going to see some real effort to make everybody sit down and figure it out. And basically saying, if you if you can't figure it out, then we will figure it out for you but we, the situation is untenable. Uh, once, we, once these counties and cities start emerging back to uh, more favorable COVID tiers, we've got to get people back into the classroom. Um, so that's really what's happening now. There's, I think it's really an effort to push everyone to the table and also to push the governor who's been quiet on, you know, people are saying, where's, where's the plan governor to get people back to school? Um, so that's what's going on there. I think it's more of a tactic to get everyone to the table and, and start negotiating good faith so we can get to some deals and,
0: and then report. Yeah, and, of course, we talk about the schools, we think about teachers, but the category of employees in schools, teachers are certificated personnel, and there are also a large number of what are called classified personnel who are not teachers but, but the support staff, the people who uh, uh, drive the trucks, clean the offices, uh, man the offices that are not teachers. And they're very much a part of this also, uh, and, and they're in separate unions uh, that will bargain separately for this. So this is an area that requires real leadership, and I think we do have to mention that that one of the things that's true here is that the people in schools, the teachers, continue to be paid. They have not, you know, they're paid. They're being paid to do the distance learning work. Uh, mm-hmm. So the kind of pressure that might that is present in other industries, where employees are not being paid and are suffering, uh, it, it makes it a much more difficult problem uh, to deal well, with. And
1: it. I think that's part of the political problem that the teachers face is that the the public is the, the goodwill, and I, and I do think teachers have goodwill. And I would say that the, interacting with my son's teachers, they're they're doing an amazing job in a, in a tough situation. Yeah, uh, but. Patience, public patience is wearing thin. Yeah. Okay. now There is some resentment saying, hey, you know, you're, you're getting paid. I'm not. Uh, I'm here. My kids are here. This is hard. Um, I need you to step it up and, and get back in there, get back in the classroom. So that's going to be the political uh, pressure on them, but I, I do think a lot of teachers are have been doing a, just a heroic <laughs> job through all of this and really trying to engage their students and keep you know, the, the wheels on,
0: uh, even as we're going through this difficult time of this distance learning. Oh, no, I think that's true. Individual teachers, many have the word heroic is appropriate here. Uh, some of my grandchildren are in uh, both middle school and high school, and I've I've seen what teachers have done to keep them engaged. Uh, and the teachers, and you talk about goodwill. You know, before the pandemic, there was a great success in a bond issue in California, and the teachers had great success as well in terms of negotiating new agreement. And before the pandemic, I think there was a widespread belief uh, that that teachers, in terms of their credibility and respect and goodwill, uh, had rarely been in a better position. Uh, and and that's, I think, one of the other things that makes this uh, the school issue such such a difficult issue. And all this is connected, of course, when we talk about COVID, with, with health issues. Uh, you're more than familiar with health issues. You were chair of the of the health committee in the assembly uh, when when you were in the assembly. Uh, and, and so we're going to deal with a range of health issues, not just in terms of administering the vaccine and making medicines available, but in terms of the very structure of the health and the financing and organization of the health industry. And those issues are going to come to the legislature as well, aren't they?
1: Yeah, that's a hundred percent correct. Um, you know that COVID has not only uh, stretched the resources of you know, our ERs and our our hospitals thin, uh, but it's also been very, very expensive. And uh, there's not an easy way to pay for that, and that's going to be an issue. And a lot of hospital systems have lost money, not just on treating COVID patients, but for the fact that for a while they were prohibited from doing elective surgeries and other procedures where they actually make money. So there's going to be a great amount of pressure um, by the whole healthcare system um, on the state to rectify uh, some of these problems. And then on the other end of COVID, uh, we have the the poor patients, many of whom have lost health insurance, uh, that has impacted health insurers and, and providers uh, adversely. I know many doctors who have seen their practices almost evaporate um, overnight because nobody's coming in, people don't have insurance. Uh, many people are afraid to go to the doctor unless it's absolutely urgent. So the whole system is going to have to recover, and there's going to be a lot of, uh, gonna, again, collateral damage from COVID um, that will need to be addressed uh, in the years ahead. I don't think we'll really know what those damages are uh, for a while, but that is going to land in the legislature as well, I think, in terms of funding uh, for, for state-paid services. Um, Funding for the, uh, the the uncovered costs of treating COVID patients, um, and then you know, the, sort of the shoring up of some of these hospital systems, which are you know, teetering; uh, they're really they're in trouble.
0: And one of the things that I think is uh, when you when we talk about these and you hear about everything that's happened uh, to medicine, I mean, telemedicine has had a huge impact in terms of, of doctors' practices. Uh, you realize, I think, that this is not just the case of saying, uh, when we get the vaccine up and the pandemic is under control, uh, we're just returning to what it was before. Uh, That's not in the cards, I think. This is a whole new set of conditions. I mean, I can't help but think that in another great uh, crisis, uh, the phrase, uh, a new deal, became the, the, the touchstone of what was being done in the country. But even putting that down now without capital letters, there are new conditions here for everyone. And in effect, people will be starting from a new point. And in effect, we will have to think of a new deal in terms of all these arrangements, won't we, to, to solve these extraordinary problems?
1: Yeah, it's. it's- create a huge problem and, and more disruption. And, you know, we only have a lot of communities in California that don't have great access to health care, particularly in rural California. There are not as many doctors, but there are not specialists. There are few hospitals. Um, and, and so the dominoes could really fall in a, in, a, in a very bad way in these communities if you have practitioners uh, closing up shop, uh, if you have hospitals consolidating or closing facilities because of the, uh, the collateral damage economically from COVID. Uh, as I said, I think it remains to be seen how bad the damage is going to be, but we're going to have to think about how to shore up those healthcare systems and how to uh, keep practitioners out there. And, and uh, uh, that may require financial help and maybe some sort of federal program. I, I don't know. Um, but that's it's a new world. And then you touched on another thing is the, the use of telemedicine has really grown uh, because of COVID. Yeah, and so everyone uh, they may be happier with that, but does that change the model of practice for um, certain doctors? And you just work out of your house mostly and give people advice and tell them to go get a lab, uh, uh, go to the laboratory, and you'll look at the results and tell them what's wrong. You
0: know, no, sort of
1: the in person may not may not be required anymore, other than for you know for uh, inpatient and outpatient uh, surgical procedures. It, could be a different
0: world no the growth of telemedicine has been around a long time and struggling to gain traction it increased slowly the people who are very seriously involved in the planning and implementation of telemedicine uh, at the end of 2019 these are not the exact numbers but the magnitude is is accurate they anticipate how many telemedicine visits there would be in uh, 2020 Uh, Their estimate, I think, was 30 or 40 million based on what had happened in the past. This is across the country. Uh, So far in 2020, there have been over a billion telemedicine visits. Uh, Doctors all over the country are changing how they practice. And uh, this sets a model in, 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 in regulatory reform. Uh, because so many regulations, and, and this is part of the discussion in California, I think so many of the regulations affecting telemedicine were dramatically changed. For example, ending uh, the, the requirement that every every time you have a patient in a state, you must be admitted to practice medicine in that state, right? And and right. all sort, and, and that's the kind of regulatory change to make these things work that I think the state is is uh, going to have to look at. We've been talking about a range of issues created by COVID and current crises. We will continue to talk about more. We've been talking with Dario Fromer and his extensive experience in these areas. But The Daily Journal not only covers this issue, though it does have extensive coverage of COVID, but it does cover a great many other issues. Let's take another short break and hear about other issues The Daily Journal uh, is now covering.
2: The Weekly Brief is brought to you by The Daily Journal, California's largest legal newspaper. Here are some of our top stories from the week of December 14th. State court judges and lawyers are holding out hope that 2021 will fare better for civil trials than 2020 did. Since the outbreak of the coronavirus pandemic, civil trials have been stalled since March. It's left a massive backlog of cases and a pessimistic outlook about the near-term future. Many attorneys have expressed anger or discouragement about how the system has worked in 2020. Some say court leadership has been secretive and judges have not communicated well with attorneys. While some counties have managed to get some civil cases done, it hasn't been without resistance and problems. And though appellate attorneys still have work, they're now worried the case pool will dry up if civil suits don't resume soon. At least two deputy district attorneys made it clear they don't agree with New Los Angeles DA George Gascon's policy to remove sentencing enhancements for serious crimes. When Gascon took office, he immediately made sweeping changes, including announcing an end to cash bail and the death penalty, granting leniency to low level offenders and, at issue here, banning prosecutors from seeking enhanced prison sentences for any felony. While some say sentencing enhancements are excessively punitive, victims' advocates and deputies in Gascon's office say it removes an effective crime deterrent. Superior Court Judge Jose L. Sandoval seemed to disagree with Gascon as well. He denied two motions to strike enhancements in court on December 15th. Deputy DA Richard Zabalas acknowledged Gascon has the ability to make these orders, but also said he and other deputies cannot tell the court it's in the interest of justice if they don't believe it themselves. Business shutdowns have radically changed commercial lease negotiations, and those changes are likely to be permanent. With commercial tenants scrambling to keep their businesses afloat and landlords desperate to fill vacancies, the dynamic between the two has changed. Blackacre real estate attorney Daniel Brozos said landlords are more accommodating now than they would have been before, mostly taking the form of bolstered force majeure clauses. But one of the biggest concerns for the real estate market, the growing number of companies announcing extended work from home policies going well into 2021. Industry stakeholders are looking to a government backed business interruption insurance policy as a possible lifeline, but it's still uncertain if that will come to fruition. To read these stories and more, go to dailyjournal.com/articles.
0: We're back from our break, and, and Dario, one of the issues we haven't talked about that is uh, almost a legacy issue now being changed by COVID, but is certain to come back, is the labor issue around classification of independent contractors uh, and employees. The legislature battled with this over two sessions, and then, of course, we had Prop 22. Uh, which passed, and so we, st- we will still have in the legislature, won't we, this ongoing battle over classification versus independent contractor in these various areas. What is likely to happen there, and what are the issues people are discussing?
1: Well, I think that the tech community is, is somewhat split. Um, you know, the Prop 22 was a big victory for Lyft and Uber and uh, Uh, DoorDash, Grubhub, uh, these types of services, and it now carves them out and creates uh, some path for those individuals engaged in those industries to uh, get some benefits and and some coverage uh, and and a minimum uh, a floor. Uh, But there are many, many, many other professions where people want to work uh, autonomously and independently uh, that we're not covered under that. And I think the question is, uh, do they want to go seek some sort of pre from the legislature along these lines. One other thing that, that has happened, is, is, as you know, is that this, the nature of work has changed so dramatically in this country uh, over the last 10, 15 years that there's old no classifications that have existed since the Industrial Revolution uh, that govern our, our, our wage orders and our, our labor law. It, it, it all fits. Sometimes it's like putting a, a, a square peg in a round hole. And, and in a way, we do have to reimagine the economy and what's gonna work and how we're gonna protect uh, workers in a new world where they may do several different types of of jobs. I mean, they may be working during the day for somebody driving Uber or, or you know, door hat, DoorDash. Um, they may decide to be in a certain place and contract with several uh, different companies with that work, uh, as many of the Uber and Lyft drivers they'll drive for those two companies and, and perhaps others. So it's raising a lot of new issues in, in, in the economy that need to be dealt with. I, I would say that some people in tech are thinking that uh, there ought to be a, a sort of a bigger deal uh, along the lines of Prop 22 and to do that with labor um, to bring everyone together and try to find a way to go forward uh, to allow for this industry but also to make sure that workers are protected, they're getting benefits, the benefits are portable, uh, and that they're getting paid. Uh, in a way that is that is fair Uh, I think others are are pleased with the result of the election and they don't think anything else should happen and it lays down a marker Um, labor was there several times I know there were conversations with labor uh, in the run-up to 22 to try to do a deal Um, for various reasons that didn't work Uh, labor uh, maybe they thought they could win 22 and they didn't need to do that but now um, they're in a tough position because California, being the largest state, you start passing a model like this. Uh, it will go to other large states as well, and um, that's going to put the uh, put labor uh, back a bit. Um, so they have to think about what their new position is in, in this in this new world. Uh, that's a long answer to a short question, but those are some of the big. Uh, issues that are going to have to be resolved, the different interest groups that will have to make uh, uh, some sort of uh, common ground if we're going to make progress on those issues in the legislature this year. It's just so contentious, Uh, And I don't know that in this current session, which I think will focus mostly on COVID, uh, whether we're going to see a lot of of, uh, progress uh, on sort of this new economy, this gig economy.
0: You know, that's very insightful. But, you know, this was a big victory uh, for the tech workers, uh, not just for Lyft and, and Uber, but for the whole model of of the gig economy. And not to give anyone negotiating advice, but there are many people who feel the best time to negotiate a permanent settlement is after you've scored a victory. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see. The risk here, as you've said, is that people on both sides stick to a very strong, almost absolutist positions. Uh, And what you said is certainly true. The model of uh, labor laws uh, are based on the industrial economy, industrial wage orders uh, adopted by a commission that no longer exists and therefore can't be modified by that commission now govern a large amount of labor law uh, regarding, uh, you know, rest and meal breaks and, uh, uh, and you know, covering employee expenses. Uh, and yet, how do you apply the concept of rest and meal breaks mandated by the labor laws to someone who works at home? Uh, it, it, it Just to state the problem illustrates the difficulty. Uh, and so whether it's done in this session or in some other session, it certainly... Uh, going to have to be resolved, or else it'll continue to be fought out in the courts over decades, which maybe is 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 the worst uh, is the worst outcome. Right. One other issue involving finance that I think our listeners are very interested in, and it may not be the highest priority, but in terms of its impact, it's extraordinarily important. People think of it as a lawyer's issue, but it's not a lawyer's issue because lawyers have clients, and it it affects clients and and we're now seeing you know civil jury trials are now being scheduled for 2022 Uh, and that means there are a lot of people involved in disputes who simply are finding that they can't be resolved that the system is almost broken down and not to any fault i think of the courts i think the courts the judicial council with its emergency powers have, have also acted heroically here to deal with the current situation but Isn't court funding an issue uh, to deal with this that the legislature is going to have to face in this session as well?
1: Well, it's another one of of many issues. And as you said, it's it's not a sexy issue, but it's a really important issue. And I would agree with your assessment. I think that the courts have done a really thorough job of managing during COVID. Uh, You know, those of us who are now participating in the video appearances (laughs) and the court calls uh, things have gone pretty smoothly and uh, at least we're able to get some things resolved, but we have put off, uh, a lot of trials, uh, necessarily so, uh, and that's going to clog things up. Um, the problem is that my, my experience, with the legislature as a lawyer, uh, is that, uh, you know, the courts often fall down the, the list in terms of priority. They don't have built in, uh, constituents other than, you know, sometimes, uh, well-intentioned uh, litigators who want to come and talk about that. And, of course, the chief justice has been a great advocate uh, for, all of, for all of courts. Uh, and so it's, it's hard. It's very hard to, when you're making decisions about, you know, providing health care or, or uh, are we going to get our kids back to school or pay vaccines, uh, sadly, the, the, the you know, sort of the concerns about the wheels of justice fall down the lip. Uh, last year, the governor cut money from the budget. The May revise wasn't a huge cut um but i would really hope and i would really urge people listening to talk to their legislators about the importance of funding the courts so that we can uh, make sure that people are having access to justice uh in a, in a expedient manner uh that our courts are open that they're operating uh it's it's unfair to people when they have to wait that long to have their to have their day and and to get justice I think all of us in the profession have to be advocates for that.
0: And, you know, the court budget is really a minuscule part of the overall state budget. And every one of the issues that we are talking about is affected by the court budget. I mean, if you have a a labor issue that needs to be brought to court, if you have a health issue, that needs to be brought to court. If you're talking about how the courts will function during uh, in terms of evictions, if you're talking about people being injured and, and needing immediate relief. I mean, every one of the issues we've spoken about eventually rests on a court system that functions. Uh, because if the court system doesn't function, if people can't get justice in the court system, uh, that, that that hurts every one of these issues. So we raise that at the end. It's always said how important it is. It's a small part of the, uh, of, of the state budget. Uh, but you, I think, are in a, in a critical position in terms of working with people uh, to help bring this to everyone's attention as well. We've been talking with Dario Fromer, uh, about all these issues and I want to say again what extraordinary experience he brings and why his perspective and analysis of these issues are so invaluable he's been at the highest levels as I mentioned in the legislature the executive branch and administrative agencies been a litigator and his discussion of this I think has helped to enlighten all of us on the issues that not only the legislature but that we all face in 2021 in the years ahead. Dario, thank you so much. We're honored that you've taken the time to be with us. We greatly appreciate it.
1: My pleasure. Uh, Thanks for the very thoughtful and uh, well-researched question.